in the name of Jesus. He was dead at the beginning. He had to be, and he wouldn't have had it any other way. It was what was asked of him, demanded even. But he was dead from the start, and it carried all the way through to the end of the parable. From beginning to end, Alpha and Omega, he was the one, the father, who died for the sake of his sons. He really was dead, legally so. But what else would you expect from a father's unconditional love? Sure, it's bad form to say the least, uh, to ask for a person's will to be executed for your benefit before that person's, you know, actually dead. How much worse for a son to treat his father that way? For my life, it's better if you're dead, Dad. The father does it. He gives in willingly so to his son's heartless demand. The son not realizing that he is also dead. Sure, he lived it up, but the self-indulgent is dead even while he lives, Paul says. The son was dead in his trespasses and sins. And he spent, wasted his existence by living recklessly. Face to face with pigs, unable to eat their pods, he wasn't yet brought to understand his true place. He was still bargaining, figuring, Sure, I've lost my place as son, but I could still be a day laborer. Confronted with his father's unconditional mercy, however, held in his dead father's embrace, he is finally brought to see that he's dead and has been all along. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He died not only to his sin, but to his bargaining, his rehabilitating his own status before his father. Repentance isn't the admission of guilt or recognition of fault, but the confession of death. That's what confession of sin is really all about. It's a confession of death. Sin is being dead while so-called living. So also, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. Confession isn't a medicine that leads to recovery. If we could recover, if we could say that beginning tomorrow or the week after next, we would all be well again, why then all we would need to do would be apologize, not confess. We could simply say that we were sorry for the recent unpleasantness, but that, thank God, and thanks to the strength of our better intentions, that's all past now. But we never recover. We die. 
And if we do end up living again, it's not because the old parts of our life are jiggled back into line. No more hired hand nonsense at all. We live again because without waiting for realignment, some other life takes up residence in our death. Grace does not do things tit for tat. It acts finely and fully from the start. Not only that, our confession follows the mercy of God. Just as the son's true confession comes after his father ran to him, gave him a bear hug, and kissed him. Confession is not transaction, not a negotiation tactic in order to secure forgiveness. It's rather the after the last gasp of a corpse that finally can afford to admit it's dead and can receive resurrection. The older brother was on the wrong side of that, as were the scribes and the Pharisees. They all thought that the sinners, the younger brother, that person, you know who exactly they are in your life, the one who needs to fix their behavior, to rehabilitate their life, as if the church exists for the well-behaved, those who've amended their lives, those who've had a real spiritual experience like that of the younger son. Whatever stipulation you place on it doesn't matter. It's just walls and barbed wire to force behavior modification, to enforce doing more to make up for your sins. It is to condemn sinners to a life of You better show it. Just more hired hand shenanigans. All these years I've served you and never forsook your command. A confession of, I've been a pretty good boy. I'll be even better, certainly better than that younger son, that sinner over there. That's not a confession of death, but a false confession of life. He refuses to be dead. In Jesus' parable, the Father puts no steps between forgiveness and celebration. Jesus does the same. It's why the scribes and Pharisees were grumbling. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Forgiveness and celebration can't be separated. There is no, well, you're forgiven, but let's have some good behavior now to make sure it sticks. None of that ungracious talk by which we make the house of forgiveness into a penitentiary. The church isn't a penitentiary of the rehabilitated, but the fraternity of the forgiven. As we confess daily in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. The church isn't a penitentiary of the rehabilitated, but the fraternity of the forgiven. And that's why Jesus does what he does. That's why 
Jesus is all about sinners to save them. That's what the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling about. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Doesn't he know who they are, what they've done? He should make them clean up their act. Any self-respecting rabbi would do that. Who does this guy think he is? What's he playing at? Pharisees and scribes in a self-made prison, a penitentiary of, now that you're in, do more, better. But they're really upset not because Jesus receives sinners, like they have to get to him before he gives them the time of day. No, Jesus is acting just like the shepherd, the woman, the father in his parables. Jesus isn't waiting for anything to save sinners. He doesn't wait for any positive action on the part of sinners. And that's what gets people upset with Jesus. How does Jesus receive sinners? Well, he goes after them. He searches for them diligently. He runs to them, hugs them, eats with them. He even does this in the presence of the scribes and Pharisees, just like the father in the parable with the older brother. His father went out and entreated him. Jesus does all that he can. He does everything to save sinners. He bears their sins, your sins, in his body on the tree. He suffers, bleeds, dies in your place. He rises from the dead. He chases after sinners, bears you on his shoulders. He sends preachers to preach the good news of forgiveness in his name. He puts baptismal fonts in all the right places so that you were baptized. He did all this without you asking him. He did all this so he could save you. He's like the fattened calf in that way. The fattened calf was just waiting around to die so that its life could be given for the sake of a party. That exemplifies Jesus. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world, John says. Jesus stood by, showed up at the right time as a willing sacrifice so there could be a party. A party to which only sinners are invited. A party for which sinners are baptized to wash away an entire lifetime of sins. The house isn't a penitentiary of the somber, self-righteous. It's a fraternity of the forgiven. And if it's a fraternity, a frat house of forgiveness, well, that means there's a party. And so there is a never-ending banquet. But this fraternity of forgiveness is different than the world would think of it. The world thinks of such things, and our flesh does too, only in terms of sinning. But in forgiveness, the Lord brings sinners from death to life. Sin is not freedom, nor is it living. And as good as dead sheep brought back on the shepherd's shoulders, a lifeless coin swept up by the woman 
a corpse of a son returning home, hugged and kissed by his father, a son lost in self-righteousness, sought out by his father. The party is, of course, free. Free for those invited, but nothing is free, of course. Christ gladly pays, paid not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood. The father in the parable doesn't wait for his son or his servants to agree. He just throws his welcome home forever bash. So also the shepherd and the woman, come, rejoice with me. The self-righteous won't come because they don't want to. They don't want to be caught dead with sinners, with those who up to that point wasted their existence, wasted the life given them by their Heavenly Father, who just welcomes them back with a party. It is God's mercy that brings you to repentance. The supper of Jesus' body and blood is part and parcel with his everlasting banquet. Here sinners eat and drink Jesus' body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins. It is the meal for sinners, after all. You do fit that bill. So you always, every week, have sins that need the supper. To say that you can forgo the sacrament for some lack of sin or not-so-bad sins, well, that's just younger son hired hand or older son self-righteous nonsense. In both cases, you're lying about your sins to yourself and to God. But Jesus, the eternal Son of the Father, has instituted his supper to take care of your sins so that you can stop bargaining, sweeping them under the rug, or ignoring them. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate even his body and blood for you. In the name of Jesus.